This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Damsel in Distress by P. G. Wodehouse. As read for LibriVox by Madame Tusk. www.rlowalrus.sitesled.com. Chapter 14. George's idea was to get home. Quick. There was no possible chance of a second meeting with Maud that night. They had met and had been whirled asunder. No use to struggle with fate. Best to give in and hope that another time fate would be kinder. What George wanted now was to be away from all the gay glitter and the fairy-like tout ensemble in the galaxy of fair women and brave men, safe in his own easy chair, where nothing could happen to him. A nice sense of duty would, no doubt, have taken him back to his post in order to fully earn the sovereign which had been paid to him for his services as temporary waiter, but the voice of duty called to him in vain. If the British aristocracy desired refreshments, let them get it for themselves, and like it, he was through. But if George had for the time being done with the British aristocracy, the British aristocracy had not done with him. Hardly had he reached the hall when he encountered the one member of the order whom he would most gladly have avoided. Lord Belpher was not in genial mood. Late hours always made his head ache, and he was not a dancing man, so that he was by now fully as weary of the fairy-like tout ensemble as was George. But, being the centre and cause of the night's proceedings, he was compelled to be present to the finish. He was in the position of captains who must be last to leave their ships, and of boys who stand on burning decks whence all but they had fled. He had spent several hours shaking hands with total strangers, and receiving with a frozen smile their felicitations on the attainment of his majority, and he could not have been called upon to meet a larger horde of relations than had surged around him that night if he had been a rabbit. The Belfort connection was wide, straggling over most of England, and first cousins, second cousins, and even third and fourth cousins had debauched from practically every county on the map, and marched upon the home of their ancestors. Like the heroine of his sister Maud's favourite poem, he was, A weary, a weary, and he wanted a drink. He regarded George's appearance as exceedingly opportune. Get me a bottle of champagne and bring it into the library. Yes, sir. The two words sound innocent enough, but wishing, as he did, to efface himself and avoid publicity, they were the most unfortunate which George could have chosen. If he had merely bowed acquiescence and departed, it was probable that Lord Belpher would not have taken a second look at him. Percy was in no condition to subject every one he met to a minute scrutiny. But when he had been addressed for an entire lifetime as your lordship, it startles you when a waiter calls you sir. Lord Belpher gave George a glance, in which reproof and pain were nicely mingled emotions, quickly supplanted by amazement. A gurgle escaped him. Stop! he cried as George turned away. Percy was rattled. The crisis found him in two minds. On the one hand, he would have been prepared to take oath that this man before him was the man who had knocked off his hat in Piccadilly. The likeness had struck him like a blow the moment he had taken a good look at the fellow. On the other hand, there was nothing which is more likely to lead one astray than a resemblance. He had never forgotten the horror and humiliation of the occasion, which had happened in his fourteenth year, when a motherly woman at Paddington Station had called him Deary, and publicly embraced him, on the erroneous supposition that he was her nephew, Philip. He must proceed cautiously. A brawl with an innocent waiter, coming on the heels of that infernal episode with the policeman, would give people the impression that assailing the lower orders had become a hobby of his. "'Sir,' said George, politely, 
His brazen front shook Lord Belpher's confidence. "'I haven't seen you before, have I?' was all he could find to say. "'No, sir,' replied George smoothly. "'I am only temporarily attached to the castle staff. "'Where do you come from?' "'America, sir.' Lord Belpher started. "'America?' "'Yes, sir. I am in England on a vacation. My cousin Albert is page-boy at the castle, and he told me there were a few vacancies for extra help to-night, so I applied and was given the job.' Lord Belpher frowned perplexedly. It all sounded entirely plausible, and, what was satisfactory, the statement could be checked by application to Keggs, the butler. And yet there was a lingering doubt. However, there seemed nothing to be gained by continuing the conversation. "'I see,' he said at last. "'Well, bring that champagne to the library as quick as you can.' "'Very good, sir.' Lord Belpher remained where he stood, brooding. Reason told him he ought to be satisfied, but he was not satisfied. It would have been different had he not known that this fellow with whom Maud had become entangled was in the neighbourhood, and if that scoundrel had had the audacity to come and take a cottage at the castle gates, why not the audacity to invade the castle itself? The appearance of one of the footmen on his way through the hall with a tray gave him the opportunity for further investigation. "'Send kegs to me.' "'Very good, your lordship.' An interval, and the butler arrived. Unlike Lord Belpher, late hours were no hardship to kegs. He was essentially a night-blooming flower. His brow was as free from wrinkles as his shirt-front. He bore himself with the conscious dignity of one who, while he would have freely admitted he did not actually own the castle, was nevertheless aware that he was one of its most conspicuous ornaments. "'You wish to see me, your lordship?' "'Yes, Keggs, there are a number of outside men helping here tonight, aren't there?' "'Indubitably, your lordship.' The unprecedented scale of the entertainment necessitated the engagement of a certain number of supernumeraries, replied Keggs, with an easy fluency which Reggie Bing, now cooling his head on the lower terrace, would have bitterly envied. In the circumstances such an arrangement was inevitable. You engaged all these men yourself? In a matter of speaking, your lordship, and for all practical purposes, yes. Mrs. Digby, the housekeeper, conducted the actual negotiations in many cases, but the arrangement was in no instance considered complete until I had passed each applicant. Do you know anything of an American who says he's the cousin of the page boy? The boy Albert did introduce a nominee whom he stated to be his cousin, home from New York on a visit and anxious to oblige. I trust he has given no dissatisfaction, your lordship. He seemed a respectable young man. No, no, not at all. I merely wish to know if you knew him. One can't be too careful. No, indeed, your lordship. That's all, then. Thank you, your lordship. Lord Belpher was satisfied. He was also relieved. He felt that prudence and a steady head had kept him from making himself ridiculous. When George presently returned with the life-saving fluid, he thanked him and turned his thoughts to other things. But, if the young master was satisfied, Keggs was not. Upon Keggs a bright light had shone. There were few men, he flattered himself, who could more readily put two and two together and bring the sum to a correct answer. Keggs knew of the strange American gentleman who had taken up his abode at the cottage down by Platt's farm. His looks, his habits, and his motives for coming there had formed food for discussion throughout one meal in the servants' hall. A stranger, whose abstention from brush and palette showed him to be no artist, being an object of interest. And while the solution, put forward by a romantic lady's maid, a great reader of novelettes, that the young man had come there to cure himself of some unhappy passion by communing with nature, had been scoffed at by the company, Keggs had not been so sure that there might not be something in it. Later events had deepened his suspicion, which now, after this interview with Lord Belpher, had become certainty. 
the extreme fishiness of Albert's sudden production of a cousin from America was so manifest that only his preoccupation at the moment when he met the young man could have prevented him seeing it before. His knowledge of Albert's told him that, if one so versed as that youth in the art of swank had really possessed a cousin in America, he would long ago have been boring the servants' hall with fictions about the man's wealth and importance, for Albert not to lie about a thing practically proved that thing non-existent. Such was the simple creed of Keggs. He accosted a passing fellow servitor. "'Seen young blighted Albert anywhere, Freddy?' It was in this shameful manner that that mastermind was habitually referred to below stairs. "'Seen him going into the scullery not off a minute ago,' replied Freddy. "'Thanks. So long,' said Freddy. "'Be good,' returned Keggs, whose mode of speech among those of his own world differed substantially from that which he considered it became him to employ when conversing with the titled. The fall of great men is but too often due to the failure of their miserable bodies to give the necessary support to their great brains. There are some, for example, who say that Napoleon would have won the Battle of Waterloo if he had not had dyspepsia. Not otherwise was it with Albert on that present occasion. The arrival of Keggs found him at a disadvantage. He had been imprudent enough, on leaving George, to endeavour to smoke a cigar purloined from the box which stood hospitably open on a table in the hall. But for this, who knows with what cunning counter-attacks he might have foiled the butler's onslaught. As it was, the battle was a walk-over for the enemy. "'I've been looking for you, young blighted Albert,' said Keggs coldly. Albert turned a green but defiant face to his foe. "'Oh, go boil your head!' he advised. "'Never mind about my head. If I was to do my duty to you, I'd give you a clip the side of your head. That's what I'd do. Then bury it in the woods,' added Albert, wincing, as the consequences of his rash act swept through his small form like some nauseous tidal wave. He shut his eyes. It upset him to see Keggs shimmering like that. A shimmering butler is an awful sight. Keggs laughed a hard laugh. Ha! You and your cousins from America. What about my cousin from America? Yes, what about them? That's just what Lord Belfer and me have been asking ourselves. I don't know what you're talking about. You soon will, young blighted Albert, who sneaked that American fellow into the house to meet Lady Maud. I never! think I didn't see through your little game. Why, I knew from the first. Yes, you did. Then why did you let him in the place? Keggs snorted triumphantly. There, you admit it. It was that fellow. Too late, Albert saw his false move, a move which, in a normal state of health, he would have scorned to make, just as Napoleon, minus a stomachache, would have scorned the blunder that sent his razors plunging to destruction in the sunken road. I don't know what you're talking about, he said weakly. "'Well,' said Keggs, "'I haven't time to stand here chatting with you. "'I must be going back to his lordship to tell him of the horrid trick you played on him.' A second spasm shook Albert to the core of his being. The double assault was too much for him. Betrayed by the body, the spirit yielded. "'You wouldn't do that, Mr. Keggs.' There was a white flag in every syllable. "'I would if I did my duty.' "'But you don't care about that,' urged Albert ingratiatingly. "'I'll have to think it over,' mused Keggs. "'I don't want to be hard on a young boy.' He struggled silently with himself, ruining his prospects. An inspiration seemed to come to him. "'All right, young blighted Albert,' he said briskly. "'I'll go against me better nature this once and chance it. "'And now, young feller, me lad, you just hand over that ticket of yours. "'You know what I'm alluding to. "'That ticket you had at the sweep, the one with Mr. X on it.' 
Albert's indomitable spirit triumphed for a moment over his stricken body. "'That's likely, ain't it?' Keg sighed. The sigh of a good man to help a fellow-being, and has been baffled by the other's perversity. "'Just as you please,' he said sorrowfully. "'But I did hope I shouldn't have to go to his lordship and tell him how you've deceived him.' Albert capitulated. "'Here you are!' A piece of paper changed hands. "'It's men like you what lead to half the crime in the country.' "'Much obliged, me lad.' "'You'd walk a mile in the snow, you would,' continued Albert, pursuing his train of thought, "'to rob a starving beggar of a halfpenny.' "'Who's robbing anyone? Don't you talk so quick, young man. I'm doing the right thing by you. You can have my ticket, Mark Reggie Bing. It's a fair exchange, and no one the worse. Fat lot of good that is.' "'That's as it may be. Anyhow, there it is.' Keggs prepared to withdraw. "'You're too young to have all that money, Albert. You wouldn't know what to do with it.' It wouldn't make you happy. There's other things in the world besides winning sweepstakes. And, properly speaking, you ought never to have been allowed to draw at all, being so young. Albert groaned hollowly. When you finish talking, I wish you'd kindly have the goodness to leave me alone. I'm not myself. That, said Keggs cordially, is a bit of luck for you, my boy. Except my heartiest felicitations. Defeat is the test of the great man. Your true general is not he who rides to triumph on the tide of an easy victory, but the one who, when crushed to earth, can bend himself to the task of planning methods of rising again. Such a one was Albert, the page-boy. Observe Albert in his attic bedroom, scarcely more than an hour later. His body has practically ceased to trouble him, and his soaring spirit has come into its own again. With the exception of a now very occasional spasm, his physical anguish has passed, and he is thinking, thinking hard. On the chest of drawers is a grubby envelope addressed in an ill-formed hand to Reggie Bing, Esquire. On a sheet of paper, soon to be placed in the envelope, are written in the same hand these words. Do not fear. Remember. Faint, F-A-N-T, heart, H-A-R-T, never one, W-O-N, fair lady. I shall watch your future, F-U-T-U-R, progress with considerable interest. Your well-wisher. The last sentence is not original. Albert's Sunday school teacher said it to Albert on the occasion of his taking up his duties at the castle, and it stuck in his memory. Fortunately, for it expressed exactly what Albert wished to say. From now on, Reggie Bing's progress with Lady Maud Marsh was to be the thing nearest to Albert's heart. And George, meanwhile, little knowing how fate has changed in a flash an ally into an opponent, he is standing at the edge of the shrubbery near the castle gate. The night is very beautiful. The barked spots on his hands and knees are hurting much less now, and he is full of long, sweet thoughts. He has just discovered the extraordinary resemblance, which had not struck him, as he was climbing up the knotted sheet between his own position and that of the hero of Tennyson's Maud, a poem to which he has always been particularly addicted, and never more so than during the days since he learned the name of the only possible girl. When he has not been playing golf, Tennyson's Maud has been his constant companion. Queen Rose of the Rosebud Garden of Girls, come hither, the dances are done. In glass of satin and glimmer of pearls, Queen Lily and Rose in one. Shine out, little head, sunning over with curls, to the flowers and be their sun. The music from the ballroom flows out to him through the motionless air. The smell of sweet earth and growing things is everywhere. Come into the garden, Maud, for the black bat, night hath flown. Come into the garden, Maud. I am here at the gate all alone, and the woodbine spices are wafted abroad, 
and the musk of the rose is blown. He draws a deep breath, misled young man. The night is very beautiful. It is near to the dawn now, and in the bushes live things are beginning to stir and whisper. Maud! Surely she can hear him. Maud! The silver stars look down dispassionately. This sort of thing had no novelty for them. End of chapter 14